So we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going through to chapter 6, verse 2. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favourable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. It's, it's another memory verse that we have. I'm not going to... Ins- I'm not going to force you to learn bits of it without 
on the screen today. That's obviously too difficult. <laughs> but each time it appears, say it out aloud again as we go. Are we ready? He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 2 Corinthians 5.15 Notice the seriousness of this verse, indeed of the Bible itself. We aren't dealing with trivial, ephemeral, unimportant issues and matters. We deal with life and death, with the reality and with meaning. So much of today's Western world is in denial of death, while millions of people are facing war and famine that threaten their very existence. And whole people groups are trying to escape from their home countries, preferring even refugee camps and the risks of drowning at sea to the homes that are ravaged by inhumanity. All the while we here sit and play silly, unreality games on television, publish magazines about celebrities who are people whose only claim to fame is their fame, and practice our well-known equal opportunity society, where every child has an equal opportunity of becoming Prime Minister because we change them regularly enough <laughs> to be able to get everybody has a chance. And Christians can get caught up in this trivialisation of life with pop psychology sermons and quarrels over the music we sing and celebrity preachers and visiting different churches. The Bible is about reality. Our conference is about reality. We're actually playing for keeps and we're serious. We're dealing with the reality of death and life. Adam was promised on the day that he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would surely die. And for most of us think that this is the first failed promise of the Bible because he didn't die. He ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and kept on living, albeit now with clothes. But that's because death is something we do not understand. It's because we don't understand what death is, because death is so universal, we don't understand that we are, in fact, already dead. We don't understand that we are the living dead, but that we are dead indeed. The illustration I've come across in recent years to explain it to people is that of the cut flowers. The moment that we cut the flower out of the garden, they're dead. But when we put them into the vase, they open and they blossom and they give out the sweet fragrance of life. But they're dead. So hang around and watch for a while and the leaves will curl and the blossoms will fall and the water will give you the stench of death. So it is with us. Don't be deceived by the vitality of youth. Understand the reality of age, for that is the true image. We're all dead, it's just a matter of time. And while you might think a lifetime is a long time, that's because you haven't studied history. Blame the New South Wales Department of Education. 
our time on this earth is very short. And so in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7, back to chapter 4, Paul writes of himself with the illustration of the clay pots. They're not created for their beauty, but for their utility. They are the basic plastic containers of the ancient world, functional and useful, but not in themselves beautiful or desirable. That, says Paul, is us. We're afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, always being given over to death. We are not really impressive and significant, important people. But he doesn't lose heart. He's not crushed or driven to despair. He's not forsaken or destroyed. For while he's been given over to death, the life of Jesus, the resurrection life, is being manifested in Paul's all-too-mortal dying body. And so he says in verse 12 of chapter 4, So death is at work in us, but life in you. This is the opposite message to the day's message of the Tony Robbins kind of motivational speaker. Good-looking, tall, articulate, funny, wealthy, with his books like Unleashing the Power helping people reach their greatest potential. Or the Joel Osteen kind of Christian motivational speaker with seven steps to living out your full potential. That is, we're not to look at the plastic container for the real valuable item is its contents, not the container. That gives all of us a chance and a hope, except those of us who are tall and beautiful and handsome and intelligent and articulate and clever. But most of you haven't got that problem, so don't worry. <laughs> we are clay pots that demonstrate the power of evangelism is in the gospel itself and not in the evangelist. The very reason that the gospel comes packaged in frail, vulnerable, weak, mortal vessels called humans, called Christians, is that people can see it's not the package, it's not the great man, but the substance that is the power of God at work. So verse 7, but we have this treasure of chapter 4, we have this treasure in the jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul doesn't lose heart because he doesn't confuse the transient with the eternal, that which is passing quickly with that which lasts forever. Look down at the last paragraph of chapter 4. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for in this light Momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What we endure in this world is not great, is not permanent. It's transitory like life itself on this planet. Our outer self is always wasting away. Oh, don't I know it. 
When you get to my age and you meet up with your old friends, and all your friends are old, when you meet up with your old friends, you always start with an organ recital. <laughs> they tell you which of their organs are failing and you tell them of which of your organs are failing. <laughs> but while our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed from one degree of glory to another. It's, it's daily, this growing. My sisters, you may like to consider the beauty hint of 1 Peter chapter 3. It's in verses 3 to 4, 1 Peter 3, 3 to 4. I'm reading it. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold, jewellery or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. See how much money, time, effort is lost on the hopeless cause of maintaining the myth of eternal youth of following the fable of eternal beauty, of flowing with the fickle fantasies of fashion as ultimately you dress up mutton as lamb. My sisters, don't be beguiled or bullied into such nonsense. True beauty, the beauty that lasts into eternity, the beauty that grows every day, the beauty that is imperishable, is the beauty of the heart. The gentle and quiet spirit which for God, in God's sight, is precious. My brothers, what are you looking for in a wife? What do you value in your sisters? Don't make their life harder for them by buying into the baloney of the world's beauty myth. Value your sisters for the beauty that they truly are as those who have the heart of God. Come back to 2 Corinthians 4.18. Look with eyes of God upon the world. Look through the glasses of Scripture to bring the world into clear focus for you. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What matters matter in your life? Your looks, your car, your sport, your wealth, your housing, your food, your career, your success, your popularity, your fame. None of it lasts. Whatever it is, none of it lasts. It's all part of this moving, transient world. It all perishes with use. It's all part of the meaningless vanity of life under the sun that you read about in Ecclesiastes. It's what Jesus said the pagans run after. What you eat, what you drink, what you wear. Go into your magazine shops, the, 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 the newspaper shops, and look at the magazines. They're all about things that don't matter, things that are passing. There's magazine after magazine about what you eat, what you drink, what you wear. Just as Jesus spoke that pagans speak, whereas the disciples of Jesus are those who seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. They last forever. 
Don't look and aspire to the things of no consequence. Look rather to the things that matter to the things of eternity. As Paul wrote to the Colossians, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. See, are you a Christian? We can't run a conference with 400 people without asking the question again. Are you a Christian? Have you raised with Christ? Have you died with Christ? Have you risen to new life in Christ? If you have been raised with Christ... Why do you set your heart and mind on the things of this world, the things of death, the things that you have turned away from and have been resurrected out of? If you've been raised with Christ, then here is what should fill your eyes. The things of eternity, the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God in all power and might and majesty. Because we have died, died to self, died to this world. And because we've been raised, risen to a new life, it's a hidden life at the moment, it can't be seen at the moment, but when Christ appears, we will appear with him and when we appear with him, then we won't appear as clay pots. Then we will appear in glory with him. So live out your death now. Live out your rebirth now. These are the context of ideas Behind this morning's memory verse. It's found in chapter 2 for the Corinthians. Here we go. He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let's take the passage clause by clause. He died for all. The argument that Paul uses in his defence is that he's not mad for the choices of life he's made, my friends. You make choices about leaving your career, your job, your family. You you make decisions to enter into full-time ministry. You make decisions to go to theological college. You make decisions to go overseas as a missionary. Somebody in your world, somebody in your family, in your neighbourhood, in your colleagues will say, he's mad, she's mad. They've lost their marbles. What on earth are they doing? How stupid is that idea? Paul had the same problem. He says, it's not because I'm mad that I'm doing what I'm doing. If I'm mad, I'm mad for God. But if I'm in my right mind, I'm doing it for you because... And then he explains it. The love that leads to death. The argument that Paul uses in his defence, he's considered the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and come to the conclusion, come to understand the love that leads to death. It was Jesus' love for us that led him to the cross. For in love, he laid down his life for us, the sinless for the sinful, to bring us to God. And that love, Paul says in verse 14, now controls us. It constrains us. It hedges us in. It it moves us and motivates us. It holds us in place. It does not allow us freedom to move away from it it controls us this love of god because paul has understood 
that when Jesus died, he died our death for us. He is fully convinced that Jesus died the death for all. And because he died the death for all, therefore all died. His death was so efficacious, so effective, that when he died, I died. For he died my death for me as my representative and even more as my substitute. So that on the day of, on Calvary, thousands of years ago, thousands of years before I was born, I died. Just as in Adam's sin, I died so that I was born dead. In Christ's death, I died. As in his resurrection, new life came. Jesus' death was so sufficient in paying for our sins that death could not hold him. And he rose to new life. If Jesus didn't rise to new life, he would be still paying for sin, either his own or ours. He didn't have any of his own, so he'd be still paying for ours. But he paid for ours, fully and completely, and so rose to new life, for death could not hold him. And just as I died with Christ, so also I rose with Christ to the new life of the kingdom of God, redeemed, justified, Adopted into God's very family. But our verse shows how Jesus' death and resurrection works out in the purpose of our lives. In our lives here and now before we join him in eternity. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised, 2 Corinthians 5.15. The purpose, God's purpose, Christ's purpose, for those who live, namely us, living in the here and now, in this lifetime, his purpose is spelled out here. We've been taken from death to new life, but we still live the old life of death, as we wait for our Lord's return. When he does return, then, as you see in chapter 5, verse 10, all will appear before the judgment seat of, of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. For we then will give account of our lives that we lived in this lifetime as Christian people. The judgment seat then will not be as to whether we go to heaven or hell. That's been worked out long ago by Jesus' death on our behalf. But what have we done with the 10, 20, 30, 50 years we have lived as Christians in this world? We'll all appear before the judgment seat of Christ then. Those who live, you see, are to no longer continue as they always had and as they would if they hadn't been born again. We will be changed by the death and rebirth. Changed in the ways we live in the here and now. Not just changed in our final destination, heaven as opposed to hell. But changed in our way of life as we await the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ or his call to higher service. And the first part of that change is to no longer no longer to live for themselves. 
For living for yourself is the normal way that everybody lives, following their own dreams, chasing their own hopes and aspirations. This is normality. All ethical systems, hardly any ethical systems rather, approve of living for yourself. Nietzsche did. Uh, Ayn Rand did in, ego, in uh, ethical egoism. But generally, nobody does. Most moralists seek to get us to live not simply for ourselves, but in some way, some kind of extent, altruistically for others. But of course, moralism always fails. Because fundamentally, sinful humanity, which is all of us, live for ourselves. But Christ's death and resurrection transforms us, changes us. And his love now constrains us. It's not we're under rules and regulations. We're under the love of Christ that leads us, controls us, constrains us to live differently. That we no longer live for ourselves. We enslave ourselves now to the welfare of others. As I spoke to you yesterday, we will now give up our small ambitions, our pathetic and pitiable prospects. But why? Why will we live for others? Because we no longer live for ourselves, but for him. And he wants us to live for others. Our master wants his slaves to enslave themselves for others. He who set us the example of living for others. He who died for others. He who set the example of laying down his life for others. He now wants us to live not for ourselves, but for him and therefore for others. We now are to live for him who for our sake died and was raised. See, what are you living for? Or who are you living for? Most people don't know how to answer that question. You, you wander out in the streets of Sydney or Australia or Canberra or Wagga, wherever you're coming from, and ask people, what are you living for? That's too abstract a question for people to even contemplate. They can't say they're living for themselves, because that sounds bad, because it's true. And so generally they come down to say, well, living for their family. But it's always living for... My family, not for other people's families. And of course, when you go and check the family life, it's never true, is it? As you see, the families dissolve into disharmony all around about us. Christians know whom we're living for. In theory, it's Jesus. But this is about doing it in reality, not just in theory. In reality, laying down our lives for other people's salvation because we look and live for the eternal, not the things that are seen. And the consequence of this is spelled out in the next few verses. For we do not see people as the world sees people, or even as people see themselves. Now we see a new creation. Verse 16, from now on therefore we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old's passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, what a transformation. The old distinctions of this world, uh, 
race, sex, ethnicity, wealth, career, nationality, age, beauty, health, intelligence, looks, they all pass into utter irrelevance from our way of understanding this world and each other and humanity and the next person I talk to. The fundamental distinction is whether we are in Christ or not, whether we've been born again or not, whether we're in Adam or in Christ. That's the real distinction, the only distinction between humanity. And how does this transformation take place? It takes place by reconciliation. So we read on in verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. This is how God brings about the new creation. This is how God brings the dead to new life. It's not by surgery or some magic tablet, but by reconciliation. The reconciliation that Christ won on the cross by putting the world to rights, by paying the price of sin so that the enemies of God will be turned into the friends of God. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And how does he do it? It's spelled out in verse 21, which is another memory verse which is another talk I'll give another day if anyone ever asks me to. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a fantastic verse, that one, isn't it? That's a real memory verse. If ever there was a memory verse to remember, that's the verse to remember. For our sake... God made the sinless Jesus, he who had no sin, to become sin. He so laid the the sin of the world on this sinless one that he became the very embodiment of sin, the sin of the world himself. So that, with the result that, in Christ, we who are full of sin, born and bred in sin, totally practiced in sin, in Christ we may become the very righteousness of God and so be reconciled to him, no longer an enemy, but now a friend and more than a friend, a child, an adopted child of God, the fellow heir of eternal life. But look again at verse 18 and see how it finishes. For God not only reconciled the world to himself, but he also gave us the message of reconciliation. Stop, brothers. Stop, sisters. Look. Look at what we're being told here in verse 18. Look and don't take it for granted. Look at the amazing thing we are being told. God is reconciling the whole world to himself by two steps. Step one. The death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is an incredible, that is an awe-inspiring thing of all things. Step two, appealing to the world to be reconciled through us, feeble, weak, clay pots, plastic that we are, that we are the very vehicles for God's two-step reconciliation of the world. 
He has entrusted to us, mere mortal humans. He's entrusted to us, frail, weak clay pots. He's entrusted to us his work and message of reconciliation. If Christ died and rose again and nobody ever mentioned it again, then nobody would be reconciled to God. But as surely as Christ had to die and rise to fulfill God's plans and his promises in the Old Testament to reconcile the world to God and God to the world, to bring salvation and forgiveness and righteousness, as surely as Christ had to die like this and rise again, so also surely the message of reconciliation had to be sent to all nations. God appealing to humanity to be reconciled to God. And his chosen method was not angels flying mid-heaven, but us, reconciled, saved members of his family, speaking his word of reconciliation. And in his mercy, in his kindness and graciousness to us, it is to us that he entrusts the message that he gives us this work to do in the world. So we're no longer living for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again. And we live for him who died and rose again by taking his message of reconciliation to the ends of the earth. We live for him by seeing this world and the next world differently, by seeing people as either being in Christ or out of Christ, by appealing to people to be reconciled to God while the day is still here. For we are under God making the ambassador's appeal. It's not our message. The ambassador doesn't give his own opinion. The ambassador gives the opinion of the government. He represents the government of his nation. And like good ambassadors, we're simply representing him. He is making his appeal through us. We don't have to be clever. Make up our own message. We have the message given to us. We just have to relay that message faithfully. So in verse 20, Paul says that we are imploring all, be reconciled to God. The word you in most of the translations in verse 20 is wrong. It's not there in the Greek. The Holman is correct. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. It's not that Paul is asking the Corinthians to be reconciled to God. They are. He's telling the Corinthians what our message is. Be reconciled to God. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's our message. That's our message to the world. A message that effects the reconciliation that God has won in Christ Jesus by making himself, by, by making him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's our message. Christ has done it. Be reconciled by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we finish with Paul appealing to you. Here he does address the Corinthians. The you is then the Christians in Corinth, the Christians in Katoomba, working, chapter 6, verse 1, together with him then. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, purposelessly, pointlessly, without producing anything. For he says, 
in a favourable time I listened to you, in a day of salvation I've helped you. But behold, now is the favourable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Have you received the grace of God in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that you have died with Christ? So that you have been raised with Christ to a new life in him? Are you that new creation in Christ Jesus? So that you are forgiven of your sins? That you are reconciled to God? That you are awaiting eternal life that has already been won for us in Christ Jesus? Eagerly awaiting for his return? Have you received the grace of God? If not, talk to someone about it this day. If so, then it's not without reason or purpose. For we have received the grace of God so that we will no longer live for ourselves. Stop it. You're dead to that. You've died to that. No longer to live for yourselves. Are you still making your plans for your life? You are not to live for yourself. It is not your life. You've been bought with a price. It is the master's life that you now live. For we've received the grace of God so that we will now, and from now on, live for him. He who died for us. And has risen again to sit at God's right hand in all power and authority. And living for him will mean viewing the world quite differently. Now it's the unseen things that matter. Not the seen things. Now it's the new creation that matters, not the old creation. Now it's the time to appeal to the nations to be reconciled to God. The amnesty has been declared. God has said in the death and resurrection of Jesus that sin is now paid for, righteousness has now to be granted. The amnesty is declared. Our job is to let people know. Come back while you still can. There is an end point to this amnesty there is a day in which he will judge all men by the resurrected door, Jesus Christ. There is a day when the amnesty ends, but the amnesty is now on. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the favourable time. While you still breathe, be reconciled to God. That's our message to the world. And that's our job in this world. That is our purpose for living in Christ and under our Lord. That we would no longer live for ourselves but for them, because of him, he wants us to live for other people's salvation. I'm interested in watching the rugby league. That's much more interesting. I wonder if the Roosters are going to win. I mean, that's, that's, that's really important. I mean, can anything be more significant than a Rooster victory? Especially as they're playing Melbourne. Yeah. I grew up in Bondi Junction. I'm a thorough rooster supporter. I'm not going to watch the game. It doesn't matter. 
I can't remember when they last won. Doesn't matter. It's an irrelevance. It's totally unimportant. If I was there, I'd watch. If I was there, I know which side to cheer for. I know which side to... No, I don't boo. But I know which side to cheer for. But it doesn't matter, does it? Of course it doesn't matter. Does it matter who wins the reality TV show? Does it matter which, which girl gets... Which fellow on the love show that is on? Does it matter? Does it matter? What matters... Well, the purpose of life is what matters. And what is the purpose of life? Well, if your life is in Christ Jesus, then the things of eternity are what matters. That's what matters. Then the beauty that matters is the reality beauty of your heart. Then you look not like the world looks, but that you look the way of the new creation. And then you start to see that what matters in your life is your Sunday school class. What matters in your life is your beach mission. What matters in your life is the person you're sitting next to in the bus that you share your testimony with. What matters in life is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because we are living under an amnesty that is going to come to an end when people will be plunged into the eternity of hell. That's what matters. It matters so much to God that he sent his son to die on the cross That's how much it matters. And you want to take the advantage of that death and enjoy the rooster's victory? What daft idiot you are. You take hold of that grace of God that you may share it with others, that they too might share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ on the day in which he comes. Now is the favourable time. Now is the day of salvation. We come away to Mission Minded for a weekend and to talk of life and death and life after death and not just life of eternity after death but life in this world of those who are living in the eternity of after death. Where are we going to live? Where? How are we going to live in this world now? The world may call our choices mad, but that's because they are, as we used to be before we knew Christ. But we're really completely sane, because the love of Christ constrains us, controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all died, and... He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake. For their sake died and was raised. One day we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, as you see in verse 10. What are you going to say then? about the life that the Lord gave you once you had received the grace of forgiveness and mercy. Oh, Jesus, I was there when the roosters won. Doesn't cut much ice, does it? No. I gave my life for the salvation of others. 
as you wanted me to. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that judgment is about living not for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you most chiefly for your son's death on our behalf that you made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, taking our sin completely and fully upon himself and paying that price of enduring your wrath so that in him we might become your very righteousness. Heavenly Father, thank you. We cannot say thank you enough for what he has done for us. But we thank you, Father, that through his death, we no longer are your enemies but your friends, adopted into your family that we can call you Father because we are your children. We thank you for this overwhelming love that Christ had for us and that you have for us, sinful as we were. And we thank you for the transforming work of your spirit, the spirit of your risen son, bringing us into this new life, this resurrected world. We thank you, Father, that you have raised us to sit with him in the heavenly places. Help our eyesight, please, Father. Help us to see clearly in focus the old world and the new creation. Help us to view people as you view them as in Christ or in Adam, that we would not be distracted by the irrelevancies of this world, but that we might see the reality of eternity in the lives that we live and the lives of people around about us. And help us, please, Father, to so grasp hold of the wonderful message that reconciliation that you have entrusted to us that we may now use this new life that you have given to us, this new creation that you've called us into, that we may now live this life no longer for ourselves as we used to, but now might live for Christ, for your Son, by taking your message of reconciliation to the ends of the earth. So control us by your Son's love that our lives may be now lived for the purpose to which you have called us, to implement the message that you have given to us, that we may bring your reconciliation to the world that you have won for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So enable us, please, Father, that we will be so transformed that we will live the way the world calls mad, but that you, that you use to bring about reconciliation. And we do pray and beg for your strength to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.